I'd like to ask you to please turn with me to our text for this morning, Psalm 133. Psalm 133. Um, We're nearing the end of a sermon series that we've been in for quite a long while here on the Psalms of Ascent. Those were the psalms that the Jewish pilgrims uh, would have sung while they were on their way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple there for the various religious festivals that the Israelites celebrated. And in the same way, we've actually been using these psalms uh, to help prepare us uh, on the journey that we've been on through the season of Advent as we've come closer and closer to this day. And so today we're looking at one of those psalms that I think ties in especially well with the miracle of Christmas. So Psalm 133. And this is what David wrote to God's people back then as well as to us as God's people today. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, uh, full uh, full disclosure, but this was actually my friend group's uh, favorite psalm back in seminary. In fact, at the time, it was probably our favorite passage in the Bible, period. Uh, We actually used to quote it to each other quite a bit. And the reason was because one of the members of our group, AJ, boasted a magnificent beard throughout our time together in seminary. All the rest of us were a bit envious of it. Uh, This was actually something we talked about quite a bit. Uh, And so the opportunities to reference this psalm were endless because whenever AJ's beard came up in conversation, which is probably a lot more than it should have, uh, one of us would inevitably start quoting this psalm. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on AJ's beard. Seminarians are weird. And let's face it, they don't become less weird when they grow up and become pastors either. So. But in a way, I think it was appropriate that this psalm became sort of the theme passage of sorts for my friend group. After all, as Eugene Peterson points out in his book on these psalms, a long obedience in the same direction, that's really what this psalm is all about. It's about friendship. It's about family. It's about community. Specifically, it's about the kind of community that we experience in the people of God. And so as we celebrate the miracle of Christmas this morning, that's something that I'd like us to reflect on a bit today. The kind of community that is possible because of the Savior born to us 2,000 years ago. And that's the note that this short psalm begins on. It begins on a note of community. Written by King David, this psalm starts with an exclamation. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Now the fact of the matter is if you've read scripture, if you read especially the Old Testament, then you know that God's people didn't always live together in unity, right? Uh, Made up of 11 tribes and two half tribes, the Israelites, God's Old Testament people, while sometimes unified and united, also often experienced periods of conflict and disunity. In fact, at times, the tensions even boiled over into outright civil war between them. And yet what David is saying here in Psalm 133 is that all of that would sort of fade away when the Israelites would make their way to go and worship in Jerusalem at the temple. 
Like we've said throughout the series, and I just mentioned it a bit ago too, that's what the Psalms of Ascent were for, right? These were the worship songs that the Jewish people would sing on their way to Jerusalem to go and worship at the temple for the various religious festivals that they held there each year. And that experience, says David, that journey to Jerusalem, that shared act of worship together there at the temple was part of what made the Israelites more than just this collection of loosely affiliated tribes and people who claimed the same God or the same same king or the same country. Instead, it made them a community, a collective whole, one people united before God in their worship together of him. As biblical scholar James L. Mays writes in his commentary on this psalm, this verse refers to the pilgrimage practices of people who were kin through the Lord's covenant sitting together at festival meals and dwelling together during a festival such as tabernacles, which was one of the ones that all of Israel would have made their way to Jerusalem for. The festival transformed the pilgrims into a family that for a holy time ate and dwelt together. The covenant bound them together and the presence brought them together. In other words, common experiences make common people. The things we do together unify us. And as David points out here, few things do that for us more, or at least should, than worship. And so regardless of where they came from, no matter what tribe they were a part of or whose clan they belonged to, and regardless of whatever else might have differentiated them or made them stand apart from each other, when they came together for their worship there at the temple, the people of Israel, in a very real sense, became who they truly were. They became the people of God. And as David says in the remainder of this psalm, that kind of unity is a blessing beyond compare. First of all, he says it's like an anointing. In verse two he writes, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Again, weird seminarian jokes aside, uh, David's point here is that to be part of God's people is to be anointed. That's the imagery here. Jesus, or David is talking about the oil of anointing in this verse. He's specifically referencing Aaron's anointing as high priest back in Leviticus chapter eight. But that's something that he, David, knew something about himself as well. After all, David had experienced that kind of anointing too. In 1 Samuel 16, the prophet Samuel showed up in Bethlehem to anoint a new king over Israel. After being led by God uh, to David's father's house, Jesse's house, Samuel worked his way through all of David's brothers while God repeatedly told him, no, it's not that one, not that one, not that one, until finally he came to David. And then in verses 12 and 13, the text says, then the Lord said, rise up and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came on David in, in power. In other words, from that day on, David was set apart. That's what it means in the Old Testament to be anointed. It means to be chosen, designated. In theological terms, it means to be elect. While on one level, David was still just a boy in 1 Samuel 16, on another level, already then, he was now God's chosen king, appointed and set apart to serve, and anointed and ordained to do God's will. And what David is saying here in Psalm 133 is that God's people, the Israelites, had received a similar kind of anointing. 
It was a figurative one. They didn't actually have oil poured on them like Aaron or David had. And yet the fact of the matter was that they too, as God's people, had been set apart, designated, and chosen to carry out his will as his servants and representatives in the world. The only difference was that unlike David, theirs wasn't an individual or personal anointing. It was a collective, communal one. They were tasked with living out who they were supposed to be as God's people together. And their unity, says David, their oneness, their community was key to that. And to illustrate that, David uses another interesting comparison. It is as if the dew of Hermon, he writes, were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. A bit of geography, Mount Hermon is a mountain in the northernmost part of Israel's historic uh, territory. Uh, Today it straddles the border between the modern nation states of Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. Known as the Snowy Mountain or the Gray-Haired Mountain, Mount Hermon is famous for the large amounts of snow that gather up on its peak, which then melt and seep down to feed the numerous rivers that flow from it pretty much year-round, even during the dry season. Mount Zion, by contrast, is located more or less in the exact center of Israel. Halfway between the Mediterranean and Dead Seas and much, much less elevated than Mount Hermon, it gets a lot less precipitation. There's a rainy season, and during the rainy season, Mount Zion sort of blooms in all its glory, but it normally only lasts a month or two. And then after the rains are done, it goes back to being kind of a barren place. But what if, says David, the dew of Hermon were to fall instead on Zion. All that snow, all that water, what would happen? What would that look like? What would lead to fruitfulness in Zion like never before? Instead of just a month or two, everything would bloom year-round there. There'd be grass, flowers, fruit, and crops all the time. The abundance of life that would suddenly be possible in Zion would be beyond compare. And that same potential says David, is possible when God's people live together in unity. When they truly live out their calling, truly live out their anointing, truly live as the community that God has called them to be, there's no end to the fruitfulness, to the beauty, to the abundance of life and goodness that God's people can experience, both for themselves and in relationship with the rest of the world. Worship like this, gives us a picture of that, a taste of it. But imagine what could happen, David says, if that was the case all the time. In fact, imagine what could happen if we, as God's people today, live that way all the time. After all, that's what we're called to do as Christians, right? Just like the Israelites back then, as God's people today, members of his church, the modern day recipients of all of his promises and grace, we've received a similar calling. We too are anointed, set apart, and designated to live as God's servants and representatives in this world. And just like God's people in the past, our unity and community as his people today is a crucial part of that. After all, just like back then, there's... So much in our world today that has the potential to divide us. 
In his chapter on this psalm and this theme of community, Eugene Peterson references a book by sociologist Philip Slater, who had some interesting and I think accurate things to say about the lack of unity and community in our culture as Americans today. He writes, it is easy to produce examples of the many ways in which Americans attempt to minimize, circumvent, or deny the interdependence upon which all human societies are based. We seek a private house, a private means of transportation, private garden, a private laundry, self-service stores, and do-it-yourself skills of every kind. An enormous technology seems to have set itself the task of making it unnecessary for one human being to ever ask anything of another in the course of going about his daily business. We seek more and more privacy and feel more and more alienated and lonely when we get it. Our encounters with others tend increasingly to be competitive as a result of the search for privacy. We less and less often meet our fellow man to share and exchange and more and more often encounter him as an impediment or a nuisance, making the highway crowded when we're rushing somewhere, cluttering and littering the beach or park or wood, pushing in front of us at the supermarket, taking the last parking place, polluting our air and water, building a highway through our house, blocking our view, and so on. Because we have cut off so much communication with each other, we keep bumping into each other and thus a higher and higher percentage of our interpersonal contacts are abrasive. Slater wrote that in 1970. That's a full 50 years ago. Sounds like it could have been written yesterday though, right? And in the time since he wrote that, I would say there's only more that's come to separate and divide us like that, not less. And yet the church is called to be different. We are called to be countercultural in this regard. We are called to be united. We are called very simply to be a community. As Peterson writes, Psalm 133 presents what we're after. How wonderful, how beautiful when brothers and sisters get along. The psalm puts into song what is said and demonstrated throughout scripture and church. Community is essential. Scripture knows nothing of the solitary Christian. People of faith are always members of a community. Creation itself was not complete until there was community, Adam needing Eve before humanity was whole. God never works with individuals in isolation, but always with people in community. He goes on, he says, the Bible knows nothing of a religion defined by what a person does inwardly in the privacy of thought or feeling or apart from others on lonely retreat. When Jesus was asked what the great commandment was, he said, love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence, and then immediately, before anyone could go off and make a private religion out of it, riveted it to another. There is a second to set alongside it. Love others as well as you love yourself. Christians make this explicit in their act of worship each week by gathering as a community where other people are unavoidably present. See how that works? As we come to declare our love for God, we must face the unlovely and lovely fellow sinners whom God loves and commands us to love. This must not be treated as something to put up with. One of the inconvenient necessities of faith in the way that paying taxes is an inconvenient consequence of living in a secure and free nation. It is not only necessary, it is desirable that our faith have a social dimension, a human relationship. How wonderful How beautiful when brothers and sisters get along. In other words, the Christian faith is in many ways entirely opposed to and opposite of the individualistic, private, between me and God religious tendencies 
that we normally have as human beings. As Peterson says, our faith knows nothing of the sort. The Christian faith is a communal faith, full stop. We believe it, practice it, embody it, and live it together. Certainly, you know, there are instances in Scripture where God calls an individual into a relationship with himself, but he always does that with an eye towards a broader community. Have you noticed that? You know, God calls Abram and Sarai in order to make them into a people. He calls Moses as an individual to liberate that people. Then he calls judges, prophets, priests, and kings to lead those people. And then finally, God called a young, unmarried girl named Mary to give birth to a savior who would one day make it possible for the rest of the world to join those people. And that's what we're celebrating together this morning, isn't it? I said at the beginning that we're here to celebrate the miracle of Christmas this morning, and it is a miracle. When you really think about it, Christmas is a miracle of God's faithfulness, a miracle of his grace, a miracle of his commitment to us, even when we are so very not committed to him. You see, God made us for relationship with him. He created us in his image to know and serve him, to worship, honor, and glorify him. Because of our sin, we don't do that. Quite the opposite, actually. And yet God refused to leave us there. Instead, he sent us a savior, his son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. He came here to earth to live among us, to be with us, to be one of us. As Sally Lloyd-Jones describes in her remarkable work of theology, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is actually a remarkable work of theology, the God who flung planets into space and kept them whirling around and around, the God who made the universe with just a word, the one who could do anything at all, was making himself small and coming down as a baby. That baby was our Emmanuel, our God with us. God come close to us again to be near to us and restore his presence to us. And yet if that isn't a miracle enough, through him, through that child, that Messiah, that savior to be, God would perform an even greater miracle. And that's because in him, In Jesus, God would call together people from all over the world, from every nation, tribe, language, and people to come together and to be part of his people. Regardless of our background, regardless of who we are or where we're from, regardless of all that might divide and separate us, God has made us one. He's made us a community. He's made us his church. That's the true miracle of Christmas. After all, what else can unite human beings like that, right? What else can unite us like that good news? What else can unite us like our faith? What else can unite us like this Savior that we celebrate today? How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. And through the Savior that we celebrate today, he has indeed bestowed his blessing 
on us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this Savior that we have. But we thank you that this Savior isn't just an abstract Savior, not just someone we believe in but who doesn't touch our day-to-day lives, not just something that has no effect on us. What we celebrate today, Lord, has tangible results in the world. We see it all around us. We see it in a special way here in your body of believers. You have called us together as your people and united us in a way that nothing else can. And it's all because of the Savior who we welcomed 2,000 years ago. Thank you for that incredible gift. Thank you for him. And thank you for how, through him, you have made us your people again. We pray this all in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.